I try to quote C.S. Lewis quarterly, at least. Um, and for a few different reasons, in part because he's just such a clear thinker. You know, he helps us to see and understand things related to the human condition, related to the narrative of scripture. Part of the reason, too, is the way in which we see from his writings a direct corollary from stories to life, to scripture, right? Um, so he writes, he says, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a children's story in the slightest. He says, no book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often more worth reading at the ages of 50 and beyond. Okay. And I was reminded of this this past week, the, the, the way in which, and I'm, I'm often referencing children's stories, the way in which children's stories can connect our hearts to deeper realities, truths, and can correlate even to what we're reading together. So in her most recent children's novel, The Ichabog, J.K. Rowling holds out two visions for life, really. You know, that's what she's doing in her book. Two visions for life, two ways of seeing life. One vision in which people live honorably because of their love for the king, their desire to serve the king. The other in which they follow rules, even when sometimes those rules are dishonorable. They, sure, they follow the rules, but it's out of fear that the people in charge will punish them. And you know, the general premise of the story is essentially that the kingdom, the fictional kingdom of Cornucopia, is filled with honorable servants of the king. They love the king. They, they want to believe the best about their king. And therefore, they desire very much to serve their king, to, to make him the, the finest things, to, to give their lives in a certain way for their king, to live their lives a certain way. Until that is, one of the king's friends who has no real authority at all in who he is in the kingdom. He's just a friend of the king, not a very good one. But he devises a scheme to frighten the people under his rule with this idea that this childhood boogeyman, the Ichabog, right, the kind of story that you tell a, a child to keep them from disobeying, you know, don't stray far from home or the Ichabog will get you. He decided that he would frighten the people with this idea that the Ichabod was actually real. Now this self-proclaimed counselor to the king understood that fear is this easy way to, to control and manipulate people, to gain power, you know. So he uses this fear of the Ichabod to seize power as the king's advisor who basically runs the kingdom, takes all the gold and all the glory for himself, all right. He wears these long, impressive kingly robes the robes of the king's advisor, he calls them, all around the kingdom. He expects people to treat him as though he were, were the king, to receive him as king, to talk with him as they would the king. He's, he's essentially aping the king in the story, and the means by which he's gained all of this kind of power and control is through fear that the Ichabod will get the people. And so they require his protection. But obviously, over time... His stories that he tells the people sound more and more ridiculous, right? The people who are willing to actually think for themselves could see how silly his claims were about the dangers of the Ichabod. They were contrary to basic level logic. They were contrary to biology. They were contrary to history. They were contrary to common sense. 
but in becoming murderously punitive toward anyone who voiced any kind of criticism related to his views, he was able to, to maintain control, to keep control in the kingdom. The people still obeyed him. They even ratted each other out. They mocked people, you know, who didn't agree that the Ichabod was real. They began even ratting out and mocking their friends and family who disagreed because they wanted to be seen as being on the right side of this. Mostly out of fear for what would happen to them in the community if they were seen as being on the wrong side of this. Despite the fact that the law in Cornucopia was now absurd, people clung to that law out of fear, supplanting the joyful obedience that they once possessed. All right, now, I'm not going to spoil how that plot develops or resolves. But obviously, just like with any story, there are a lot of corollaries with the central conflict in that plot to the time in which we live, and I wish we had more time to discuss that. For our purposes this morning, the nature of the conflict in Cornucopia serves as a timeless illustration of how the central conflict that now begins to arise in John chapter 5 continues to be a conflict that we wrestle with today. The central conflict in which we have this front row seat to how absurd it is to supplant the joyful transformation that we've been given in the gospel with law. That's the title of our sermon this morning, when law supplants gospel. So let's back up a bit. Following the end of chapter 4 last week, and really the end of that whole section, or inclusio, in which Jesus ministers to Judea and Samaria. He now enters into a new section in which, here's what we see this morning, six scenes that set the stage for a central conflict in John's gospel. All right, so there's this narrative that's unfolding, and in the narrative we see six scenes that set the stage for a central conflict, and it's a conflict in John's gospel, but as I said, it's also a central conflict in our own response to Jesus, in the way that we respond to Jesus, in the way that we respond to the scriptures. So I'll, I'll get into more detail toward the end of our time together, but the events of this chapter really served to kickstart this growing problem, this opposition that the religious leaders have with the ministry of Jesus. This is kind of the event that pushes the snowball from the top of the hill. It's where we see it beginning. Okay. And the roots of the conflict are found right here, so in this set of verses. Six scenes that set the stage for the conflict, starting in verses 1 through 5. Set your eyes there with me now. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So here we see scene one of the narrative as it's unfolding. Scene one, mere superstition run amok. Mere superstition run amok. So I'll acknowledge here at the front end, there are some who do not see the passage this way, the way that I'm about to present it. Okay. And there's a particular stream of American Christianity that actually uses this passage as something of a proof text that, you know, if you, have, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you of your afflictions. That God came to free you of, of disease and sickness and illness. 
And so if you have enough faith, his desire is to heal you, is, is how this claim goes. But I don't think that's what the passage comes remotely close to saying. And to understand some of the nuances here, we have to get some of the background of the passage. So this is happening at some point after the sign that Jesus performed in Galilee that we talked about last week where Jesus heals the son of this royal official, right? Not entirely sure how long it's been, how much longer, but it happens after that. The text also doesn't specify which of the Jewish feasts is being observed for which Jesus now has traveled into Jerusalem. That's not really the point of the passage. John doesn't include those details, right? His focus is on this particular event that happens when Jesus is in Jerusalem. Okay. And as he focuses on that, he, he tells us about this pool. So by the sheep gate... In Jerusalem, there's a pool, pool of Bethesda. We actually have attest, like multiple attestations of this pool in history from Bethesda. There's a copper scroll from Qumran. It was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1960 that references this pool. Various ex excavations have unearthed a pair of pools in this specific area, which is very likely where this event took place. But in the text in John 5, we read that a multitude of blind, lame, paralyzed people would come and lay by this pool. And the obvious question is why, right? And the answer was that there was a popular understanding during this time that the waters of the pool were being stirred up by angels and that that stirring would provide a healing for, for sick people who would find their way into the pool or around this disturbance, this bubbling up, this disturbance that was happening in the waters. Okay, the, the problem is, so some people interpret this passage and they say, that is what was happening. Angels were stirring the waters. They use this section of text that's probably in your footnotes. So if you have a Bible that has footnotes and you look down to the bottom, it'll say, some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water whoever stepped first whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had so people insert this in and they say so this is what was happening an angel was healing people in the pool an angel's healing people in the pool i don't think so the problem is that section of text there's a reason it's in the footnotes and not in the, the body of, of the scriptural text in your bibles that um text uh, was added later on, okay? Uh, some of you have it as the footnote rightly because the majority of translations have removed it from the text. It was, it was added much later after John wrote the account and it was added because it was likely an ancient tradition. So some scribe comes along and he notes that there's some context here that perhaps a reader who comes from outside of Jerusalem isn't going to understand what's happening in the text. So he kind of inserts, traditionally this is what was believed, but it's not actually likely what was happening. It's an ancient tradition. In other words, this pool likely being fed by intermittent springs would occasionally be dis disturbed by those springs flowing into the pool. People in the first century began perpetuating a merely superstitious claim that this was the work of an angel that could heal, which became a popular understanding among many 
Jewish people who brought sick people to lay outside the pool and wait because it would be very odd indeed for Jesus to be present here where angels were so outwardly working every day to heal people beside the one who commands the very angels himself while not himself acknowledging the work is legitimate. It's not verified anywhere else, nor is it the normative means of God's intervention. So let me make a quick clarifier and then explain a bit further, okay, before going on. Am I saying here, that God doesn't in intervene miraculously in this world. That he doesn't bring healing miraculously. That whenever we see or hear about miraculous healing kinds of events, it's simply people mistaking natural events that we don't understand, like springs making waters bubble up, for supernatural events, angels stirring waters. I'm not saying that. Of course not. I believe that God absolutely can and does Work miracles in our time. Intervene in our time. Matthew rightly prayed this morning for God's healing on people. I believe he does this work. Indeed, as I think the text bears out, our problem actually is that we ignore the miraculous work of God that's all around us. Not, just not the way we think. M many people come to faith in Christ every day around the world. But we don't think of this event as miraculous. We think of it as just like this normal event. In reality, when people put their faith and trust in Christ, this is someone going from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is indeed a, a miraculous event. It's something that you and I cannot precipitate by way of our own efforts, right? So we tend to think of the truly miraculous workings of God as normative, people coming to Christ because we're looking for something that we deem more amazing. And actually, the problems here go beyond all this because the kind of healing that's just obviously anticipated in the text by the people who are coming to lay beside the pool, the popular understanding of the day, it has all the hallmarks of the kinds of claims we should be suspicious about, frankly. First of all, it's effort-based. Who can get into the pool first, right? There's some luck involved. Who can get to the pool at the right time of day? It's completely unfalsifiable in the scriptures, right? It's impossible to verify. It's not verified by the scriptures, which should be the biggest problem for the Christian. It's not part of John 5. It's added later on, right, by a scribe. But uh, someone can always make a supernatural claim that's impossible to back up that we don't find in the scriptures. So it has all the hallmarks of mere superstition. And in this case, I really believe it's mere superstition run amok because this text is still used to this day, by people who preach this text as a means by saying, like, look, if you believe enough, if your faith is strong enough, if you do the right things, if you, if you give enough to the church, if you put enough effort in, then, then you can be healed of various afflictions. Maybe, maybe this is why the Pharisees don't voice a complaint or problem with this kind of healing in the text. Like, they're, they're going to voice a problem with the healing in a minute. Just not this particular pool healing tradition. Perhaps because it has no authority, no power. It finds its home in people's imaginations. And it's, it's used easily to spiritually manipulate. You didn't get healed because you didn't really want to get healed. What's wrong with you becomes the, the issue. So more to be said on that because... We're going to see this kind of tension as we go on in the text. But John's purpose at this point is to help us understand why there are so many blind, lame, paralyzed people here. It's also intended to begin to draw out a contrast. So here we see the beginning of a contrast in the text. 
various commentators talk about this contrast in different ways, right? We've already seen in John this theme of looking to water for life, a common enough occurrence in the first century, you know, looking, looking to water for life. So when Jesus turned the water into wine, do you remember? He used these ceremonial pots. People would use these pots because they were looking for this water from the ceremonial pots to make them ceremonially clean so that they could come into worship. But water from ceremonial pots can't actually make you clean or solve the central problem of your heart. They were intended to point to Christ. Okay. The woman at the well believed that the water from Jacob's well could quench her thirst. She despised the fact that she had to go to the well in the middle of the day. Out of the shame of being seen in public, but Jesus says the water from Jacob's well can't actually satisfy the ultimate thirst that she has. And in the same way, I mean, that points forward to him. He's the living water. And in the same way, the promises of a merely superstitious pool of water have no ultimate authority or power to transform the human heart. Do we see this kind of theme developing here? So this is scene one. I believe it to be mere superstition run amok. God's people, once again, looking to something other than what he's given them for healing and transformation. But that brings us to scene two, miraculous intervention by sheer grace. Miraculous intervention by sheer grace. Because here we actually do see God intervening. God coming and performing the miraculous. Verses six through the beginning of, chapter, of verse nine. When Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So we see this popularized claim. First one in gets healed. You gotta, it's, it's a race to the healing. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So some of the false teaching from this health, wealth, prosperity crowd, says, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. And they see Jesus here as suggesting that perhaps this man, he's testing his faith. Perhaps this man hasn't found his way into the pool and been healed because he just hasn't wanted it badly enough. They see that in this question. So it, it's sadly a common enough claim among false teachers today. When I was a kid, I had this fifth grade teacher. He's a great guy. Loved Jesus. Strong Christian guy. He was blind in one eye because of this degenerative illness that he had. And he was very open about the reality that unless something changed, he would one day, sooner rather than later, be blind in both eyes. And he was pretty open about that reality with us. He talked with, with us a lot about it. But he also shared that one time, this group of healers came to the town, his hometown. And one of his friends reached out and said to him, hey, let's give this a shot. God can work a miracle. And so they, they contacted this uh, organization and they, they said, yeah, you know, if, if you really believe, we can heal you. Come out to this event, you know. Um, so they went, they went, and they told him after some shuffling of the feet and some clearing of the throat and some awkward behavior, they, behavior, they, they told him they, they couldn't heal him because he didn't have enough faith. He hadn't worked up enough faith to be healed. He was deeply discouraged by this because, as I said, he was genuinely excited about the prospect. I mean, he was really excited. He believed that God could heal him. But we see this kind of spiritual manipulation often from false teachers related to these kinds of claims. 
unfounded claims. And this text is used by the same crowd to say, see, if you have enough faith or you want it badly enough or you work up enough desire for the thing, then God will bless you. He'll heal you. And they see evidence for it here because Jesus asks the guy if he really wants to be healed. If the problem is a problem of desire or enough faith, an amount of faith that's keeping him over this long period of time attempting to be healed from actually being healed. And then he passes the test. And after he passes the faith test, then Jesus heals him. But that's just not at all the nature of Jesus' question to this man. Like, there are other texts in, in which we see a faith response to Jesus that comes to him with empty hands. But that also, and so Jesus heals the individual. That also does not point to, to the idea that if you have enough faith, if you work up enough faith, then God owes you a healing or something like that. It also has this idea of empty hands, right? So it's not the direction the narrative takes, as we'll see the direction the narrative takes is actually the opposite. With all these healing narratives, it's the opposite. It's actually that you can't work up enough good faith to deserve anything from God. You can't work up enough strength or effort to deserve to be healed or to reach some level of spirituality where God blesses you on the basis of being good, good enough. You know, like you can't do it. <clears throat> That's actually the point. And so the purpose of Jesus' question it's not one of psychologizing the man. It's inviting him. Jesus is inviting him. This is a gospel invitation, not a test of faith. Do you, do you want to be healed? And rather than passing a test, which the man clearly could not pass, he's actually demonstrating a character throughout the narrative that he can't pass it. Like in other words, another problem with this view here that we see evidence that God helps those who help themselves this man needs to work up enough good faith, and when Jesus passes the test, then, you know, Jesus heals him. And then he shows the opposite of good character and good faith in the story. Like, what are we talking about here? We see this, it's almost humorous, and I don't want to spoil it, but the narrative is going to cut directly against this view that this miraculous intervention was precipitated by good character or being strong enough in your faith, reaching some level of faith in order for God to heal you. What is it instead? It's a miraculous intervention by sheer grace. By sheer grace. The grace of the Lord in bringing healing to a man who could not have achieved this by his own effort. He could not have passed some kind of a test. He couldn't have worked up enough effort to receive this thing that he's being given. It's being held out by the grace of Christ. And we see this reflected also in Jesus' words. You know, his words to the man are ultimately what heals and instructs the man to go. First he says, get up, get up. You know, in this, in this word, in this phrase, get up, we actually find echoes of something that Jesus will say later on in this chapter that we're going to talk about together next week, actually. That in the last day, those who are dead will hear the voice of Jesus and they will get up. They'll rise. They'll be made alive again. So verse 25, you can set your eyes there. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Get up, hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The words of Jesus heal this man by grace as a way of pointing forward to this ultimate healing by grace in which we'll rise from spiritual death into spiritual life that begins now and goes on for all eternity. The words of Jesus also give an instruction. Here we see what moves us from scene two, miraculous intervention by sheer grace, sheer grace, gospel graces, it's grace alone in Christ, to now scene three, moralistic resistance to that grace. 
There's an initial moralistic resistance because Jesus tells him to pick up his mat and walk. You know, can we just stop for a minute and think about the fact that this man has been unable to walk for 38 years. He needs someone else to bring him down into the pool. He's not able to do this under his own strength. And so this command that Jesus gives, get up, take up your mat, and and, and go, walk, right? That should bring people to awe and wonder. Barrett writes this, he says, just as the 38 years prove the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed and walking prove the completeness of the cure. The whole point is to stir the awe and wonder of the reality of, of who Jesus is and what he's doing, okay? But it's truly amazing what the response actually is to this miraculous event among both this man and the religious leaders. So let's keep reading. Second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Okay, this short sentence sets the stage really for one of the primary conflicts in the book. It also sets the stage for the interaction that's going to begin now and go through the rest of the chapter. We're going to talk about it more next week, too. So, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That is what they're, they're choosing to focus on. Okay. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. I'm sorry, it's funny. And as there was a crowd in that place, just by way of strengthening the point, it's clear in the text that Jesus' miracle must be sheer grace and not based on the man being a strong enough candidate for the healing because it's really absurd what the response is. And you know, I'm not saying this as, as we read this, we're so much better because I really think as we're going to talk about, we should be reading ourselves in this response. But listen, look at what he does. He immediately rats out Jesus. And he shifts all responsibility to him. He's trying to get out of trouble. He's not giving credit where credit's due. And also, apparently, you know, when you read verses 12 and 13, it's like, apparently, he didn't even bother to learn the name of the man who healed him. Right? There's like a lot of problems that are going to continue. They're going to continue. All right? So placeholder there. But just think about the enormity of this response, both from the religious leaders and from this man. The religious leaders are witnessing a man who's been unable to walk for the 38 years. All they can point to is that he's carrying a small mat on the Sabbath just by way of context. Okay, so these mats in the first century, they were made of straw, light enough to roll up and carry around to any of the events that you're attending, you know, where you'd be sitting, having a seat, right? So he's carrying this small mat. In addition, it's not clear in the text that the man has broken any Old Testament law. It's not clear that that's the case. The Old Testament stipulation prohibits work on the Sabbath. That is true. But work was in reference to what an individual did for a living. They were to cease from their laboring. The activity they did to support their family, they were to rest in God, rest in his provision for the people, right? Um, So, you know, unless this man carried mats around for a living, which would be a strange profession for an invalid in the first century, 
He's not actually breaking Old Testament law, I don't think. Even if he was, Jesus told him to do this, so he's under no moral obligation to obey law. If the second person of the Trinity is standing there as the ultimate fulfillment of the Sabbath, instructing him to take up his mat, but we're going to talk about that more next week. So if it's doubtful that he's even breaking Old Testament law, what's the problem? Why are these religious leaders all riled up if no, no real law from the Old Testament is being broken? It's because he's breaking tradition. He's breaking their tradition. In other words, the religious leaders noticed a problem a long time ago. The problem was that people didn't obey this honoring the Sabbath law in the Old Testament. They continued in their labors. They continued in their work. Right? They continued to try to provide and support. They would break, break the Sabbath. They would work anyway, though they were commanded to rest. And so... The religious leaders attempted to solve this problem by creating more law to follow, right? The idea was, you know, just to err on the side of caution, we'll make even more strict stipulations so that the people don't come anywhere close to, to what we consider be, to be the edge of breaking this particular law, right? So they developed 39 categories of work that the Mishnah prohibited on the Sabbath. And they said, this is essentially an addendum to the law, right? It's like a footnote. So it says not to work on the Sabbath. Here's our definition of work. You know, 39 things. 39 areas of work. Even though that wasn't the case. In order to keep people from breaking the law, they added more law. In order to create obedience or force obedience, they added more law and they created a fear-based system to keep people in check. Because if you didn't obey, you know, if you were caught disobeying, you'd be put out of the temple put out of the synagogue. Like, despite the fact that these 39 new stipulations were not found in the scripture, you'd be in huge trouble with the religious leaders of the day. And you see some of that fear-based leadership showing up throughout John's gospel. And you see it here in, I think, how the man responds because, you know, they, they perceive a threat to their own ability to control and manipulate the people. Which is why... They don't glory and honor in the sight of a man who's been lame for 38 years, who can now carry his mat, you know, he can now get up and carry his mat. But instead they focus on the fact that he's got the gall to carry his mat on the Sabbath. His response to this is to immediately shift blame. He's blaming Jesus, the guy who just healed him. It's crazy, but this is what moralistic resistance to grace gets you. If you think that following a certain set of laws saves you, you know, and your inability to keep certain sets of law condemns you, everything in your life is going to be characterized as either pride and arrogance that we see in the Pharisees, because you falsely think that you can do it and you're doing a better job of others than others of doing it. So you're looking at others and saying, like, what's wrong with them? Okay. Or, more, even more often than that, when you realize that you can't follow the law, Everything in your life becomes characterized by anxiety and fear, including the good things that you're doing. You know, like everything's anxiety and fear because uh, you're always second-guessing yourself in the law, right? So the fear is so powerful that the man points the finger at Jesus despite what Jesus did for him. We should also be honest enough, though, at this point to recognize this is really our response. We often supplant law for gospel. We supplant the gospel with law. 
We should recognize how easy it is for us to do the same thing in the life of the local church. It's easy to create a vision for disciple-making that's primarily based on reaching certain checkpoints, your ability to do certain things, and therefore to attempt to solve the problem of disobedience. And I think this happens in the life of the church far more than we're willing to admit. But to, to attempt to solve the problem of disobedience by creating more law, you know. And then to use that law as the fulcrum to get people to obey. Instead of the grace of God that we've been given in Jesus Christ that actually does this for us. Giving more law in response to, to law breaking, it's a common enough human endeavor. Giving more law to keep us from sinning. But listen to me. The New Testament simply does not take that approach to disciple making at all. Far from it. Rather than adding more law... We see the grace of the gospel applied to every failure of the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to this church that's fallen into sin in a number of categories. You know, but rather than saying, okay, really, is this how you want to do it? Fine, I guess i got to just give you more restrictions to keep you in check. We don't, we don't see that. Paul addresses the disobedience. He does. He calls it disobedience. He calls people to obedience. But the way that he does this is by immediately shifting back to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Peter does the same thing. You know, all of the writers of the, the New Testament, they're constantly pointing us first to gospel graces and then to this, this life that, that gospel grace gives us that we're going to talk about now. Okay, so yet here in scene three, we see moralistic resistance to that gospel grace. And all of that brings us now to, a, to the major contrast, I think, here. It bears out in the next two scenes back to back. Because in scene four, if you look at the notes that I provided, in scene four we see mercies that lead to transformation in verse 14. But then in scene five we see manipulation that leads to fear. So you actually see the two approaches side by side in the text. Whereas law manipulates to fear if we believe the law can save. Law is supposed to point us to Christ. But law for salvation manipulates to fear. It doesn't enable us to follow the mercies of God in the gospel actually transforms our hearts to look more and more like Christ. So um, let's take a look at these two scenes back to back. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Okay. Here we see a warning. What's it rooted in? Here we see the... We see mercies that lead to transformation. So afterward, the text tells us, we're not sure how long afterward, Jesus finds this man in the temple. This is somewhere in the temple precinct, just south of the Pool of Bethesda, right? But the point is, this man is now walking around Jerusalem. He's doing things that he was never able to do before. And Jesus wants to draw his attention back to this moment. Apparently, he needs it. He needs his attention drawn back to the miraculous intervention by grace. And he says, friend... See, you are well. Look at you walking around the temple when for the last 38 years you've needed somebody to carry you into the pool. You couldn't have gotten around like this. But he follows with this, this, this reminder of grace with this statement, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This is really, I think, oftentimes a broadly misunderstood verse. Because what's... What's Jesus doing? He's very intentionally and explicitly doing this. He's connecting the grace that this man was given with the way he should now be living in light of that grace. That's the idea. It's like you claim belief in this grace that you've been given, 
You've been given an opportunity to see who I am and what I've come to do for my people. This should stir in you a, a different kind of response. But let me make three pastoral reflections just on this, this phrase, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, because I think it tends to get misunderstood. People uh, often teach this in a way that I think is antithetical to what the narrative is saying. So three, three reflections. First, as nearly all commentaries agree, there is no doubt some instances of suffering are the direct result of specific sin in the life of an individual. Some areas of suffering are the, they are the direct result of specific sin in the life of a person. In fact, this is a basic reality for all people to an extent, and it's, it's really universally agreed upon. There are many areas of suffering that are just natural consequences of our actions. We know this to be the case. We suffer in prison, often because of something we did, even if we've come to regret it. We might suffer we might suffer physically because of years of drug or alcohol abuse, even if we've come to regret what happened. There's natural consequences. There's suffering that happens as a result of sin in our lives. So it's undeniable that some instances of suffering are the direct result of specific sin in our lives. But secondly, I think while the scriptures absolutely do encourage us to look into our own lives and to do this honest introspection at times related to the possibility of those connections where they can be seen and known, we don't ever look at the tragedy of others, the suffering of others, as signifying that they must have done something wrong. They're somehow morally inferior to me. Look at that person. They're suffering. Obviously, they must have gone off the rails. God's punishing them. We don't ever do that. We'll see that addressed in John chapter 9 when the disciples see this man that's born blind and they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, right? And Jesus rebukes the question with his response. Okay, um, so we don't ever do that. But also, it doesn't mean that when we get sick or experience tragedy and we don't know why, it must be because of something we did and we were kind of looking for the secret meaning behind our sickness because we're being punished by the Lord. Like, I think this creates an unhealthy fear that has its roots in moralism and not gospel. We're always second-guessing ourselves and fearful under the law. But that brings me to third. Then why? Why this verse? The primary aim of this verse John 5.14 is to demonstrate that grace transforms. In other words, if this man receives the grace offered by Jesus but is not transformed by it, it is an indicator of something far worse for him than his affliction ever was. His affliction will be nothing in comparison to having this grace held out but then living in a way that departs from it. Okay, there is something much worse Jesus is trying to communicate to him than a physical earthly affliction in this life. Like if this healing signified a far greater healing in Jesus, both now and in the last day, a salvation in the last day, when we move from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ, then continuing on in sin after having this grace held out to him would also signify a far greater problem than his physically lame condition. So Grant Osborne, super helpful, writes this. He says, throughout the miracle stories of the gospel accounts, physical healing is accompanied by spiritual healing. Often the verb sozo is used with a double meaning. Heal and save. So this word sozo in the New Testament, it means to save, right? But it also means to heal. So there's kind of this double meaning. There's this play on words. So Osborne continues. He says, now that the man has been transformed physically, it's time to be transformed spiritually. To get right with God lest he face something worse 
divine judgment for sin. Do we see the difference, right? Um, Upon hearing all this, this idea that it's actually the grace of, of Christ that transforms the heart, this man obviously goes from here, committed to therefore no longer give his allegiance to this moralistic system of religious leaders, and he refuses to participate in it. No, that's actually not at all what, what he does. Here we see the contrast between scene four, mercies leading to transformation, to now scene five, manipulation that leads to fear, because look what happens. The man went away and told the Jews that Jesus was the one who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Once again, the guy immediately rats Jesus out. We have evidence in John's gospel that this kind of arrogance leading to allegiance to the religious leaders is fear-based, something that we'll see again in chapter 9, just like the Ichabod in which we saw citizens ratting out other citizens, even when they were friends and loved ones, simply out of fear for what would be done to them. Here this man rats out his healer. This shows how much moralism controls people by fear. Not doing what's right out of a genuine transformation and changed desire, but only doing it out of a sense of untransformed duty. Whereas the mercies of Christ transform the heart to want to follow God. They transform our, our desires. How ultimately does the gospel accomplish that transformation? Well, it leads us to our final scene, scene six, which we'll really look at next week. But here we see the means of Jesus' ministry. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. How does the gospel accomplish the kind of transformation that so differentiates itself from this fear-based, manipulation-based law approach to salvation? This idea that you have to work up enough faith, that you have to be good enough, that you have to be strong enough. How does, how does the gospel actually accomplish the kind of transformation that all of that fails to do? Ultimately because of who Jesus is in the text. It's ultimately because of who Jesus is. His authority over matters of Sabbath, his authority to physically heal, his authority to grant sheer grace for salvation flows out of who he is and what he's come to do for his people. Flows out of this eternal decree from God to send the second person of the Trinity, to send his son into the world to save. What he does flows out of who he is. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this next section of John is where we find the various I am statements of Jesus moving forward. We'll see this rising opposition now in the text moving forward. We'll spend more time next week looking at how Jesus actually is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, but the ultimate expression of who Jesus is and what he came to do is found at the cross where he made a means by which we, we might now enter the kind of Sabbath rest that was held out to us truly rather than the labor that the law creates because it does create labor. It's at the cross where we now find life instead of spiritual death held out to us. It's at the cross from which we can now live in a way that's truly pleasing to God, enjoy a changed kind of heart, rather than just doing what we think we have to do out of fear. It's so easy, guys, it's so easy to supplant 
the gospel with law, to, to create more law as a means of stirring obedience, to forget the gospel of grace. But when we do that, we also cut ourselves off from the very source of life and growth that our hearts so desperately need. It's like every time we do that, we're sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. I mean, I use that illustration a lot, but it's true. And so we need this weekly. We proclaim this weekly. Like as we go from here, the encouragement to the life of the church is to proclaim the gospel of grace to one another all the time. Why? Because our hearts will naturally shift back to thinking that we can save ourselves. And we see where that leads us in the text. So we proclaim it weekly. We proclaim it here weekly and we proclaim it at the table weekly where we're reminded of the grace of Christ at the cross the way that he's made for us to enter into his rest. And so we, we remember this together now, and by preaching it to one another, we receive grace here at the table. So this, this time together, this is for believers. This is a time where believers in Jesus can come to the table and proclaim that, that Jesus, he died in our place as our substitute. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that, so that that wrath and that punishment did not fall on us, but rather on his son. And that actually, as Christians, he now goes with us. We're in union with Christ. And we, de we declare this to one another as a means of reminding one another of the grace that we've been given so that we can go in Christ, live according to what it is that he's called us to do. So this, this meal is for believers. If you're here and you're not a believer... You can certainly walk with people up to the table. We, we ask you, you know, don't, don't take. Just observe. Just look. But you could this morning make this your first time taking communion as a believer in Christ who realizes, even this morning, who realizes my whole life I've been striving after self-salvation trying to somehow make myself right, clinging to things other than Christ to save in an ultimate kind of way. And here at the table, we see it proclaimed. Jesus came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Throw yourself on his mercies that, that you might know him, that you might enter his rest. And so uh, I invite you, come forward, take these elements back with you to your, your pews.